another Thursday with Thor. And today we're going to talk about preservation, breeding, how I go about my process of really making my seeds. And everyone's approach is a little different. We're just going to talk about how I go about it. In today's episode, I really want to touch base on what a preservationist is and what a breeder is and what we go through. As a preservationist, there's a lot of us out there. A lot of us have a favorite genetic. A lot of us like to smoke certain genetics. A lot of us have that go-to. So a lot of the time, we will want to see if we can grow it. Hey, how do I get a hold of the seeds? Or, you know, how can I make my own? So a preservationist is someone who isn't really going through the entire process of breeding. And is someone who really is just wanting to make a stock of seeds. So let's take this for example. Say I have a Gelato 33. Uh, It's in seed form. I pop the Gelato 33. I find a male and a female. Um, They are pretty good females. I did a decent selection of what I had to work with. Because I know a lot of guys out there, they don't have multiple packs. And we'll talk about that more in depth as I go. Because as a breeder, I believe, uh, you know, you have to work with multiple packs. You're really going through a lot more of a process than you are just preserving something. So a lot of us preservationists out there, well, sometimes only have one pack to work with or, you know, two packs to work with. And we're really um, picking the best of the best to work with out of that pack. And we're going to take a male and a female and we are going to make seeds with it. And what we do is we uh, take them both. We have them in the same temp chamber or the same area. And we're going to flower them uh, 12-12 like everything else would be. And the sex on the male will develop the sacs and the anthers will come out and the pollen will spew onto the female. And the female will receive the pollen. And five to six, sometimes seven weeks later, you know, you have your seeds and you're harvesting um, after that pollination. And when you do that, you're creating a stock of offspring uh basically replicated off of the parental genetics, the male and the female that you chose. So as a preservationist, you're not really um, doing too much of the choosing. You're just kind of putting stock together, you know, and that's because you want to grow that over and over again. You're not putting it into a package. You're not putting a name on it. You're not, you know, reselling it with your own brand. You know what I mean? It's, It's not something that you really kind of read. It's something that you preserved. And the reason why you preserved is because you enjoy growing it over and over again. And I get that. A lot of us do that. And a lot of us, once they understand that we can create stock for ourselves like that, we start to understand that it could actually save us a little bit of money down the road. It actually will create a better growing experience down the road, too, because from that offspring, you could find some great variants. And depending whether you're working genetics that are fourth you know, third, fourth, fifth generation. Uh, sometimes you don't ne- definitely don't necessarily have to have multiple packs, you know, when it's a, you know, a fourth or f- fifth generation, because typically a breeder bred those for you and selected those to uh, come out a certain way because he was behind the wheel. The engine just wasn't running. So a lot of the time a breeder will do a lot of that work for you. So when it comes down to preserving the, you know, F3, F4s and beyonds and stuff, and you're just making some stock, it's it's really easy just to pick out from what you got from a couple packs. Now, breeders, 
they are in depth. Okay, breeders, how could I say? They're more of the OCD, you know, they're more of the hands-on type people that really want to shape the world. And when it comes down to it, they are shaping their own world. And that's what I have found in breeding to be just amazing is when I find something that I feel like has a particular taste and terpene profile, that'll mix with another particular terpene profile to make something excellent. Or I notice a couple medical traits in one and then a medical trait in the other. And I figured if they combine, you know, and then we could, you know, search for a specific ailment and things like that. These are thoughts that go through breeders' minds. You know, these are uh, intricate details that really make us who we are as breeders. A breeder typically is someone who will go through the process of selecting from, you know, three to five packs of, of uh, seeds to really find that parental uh, lineage to shape the direction that they're going. So if someone typically wants uh, plants that are, you know, specifically uh, colored or they're looking for something that um, can turn that black out, that dark purple, the reds, or someone that's looking for a, a little bit tighter of a bud because uh, they don't necessarily like how um, this one genetic looks and the way the bud's shape, but they love the way it smokes. They're going to try to put it together with a another genetic that is really going to uh, be like a tight, dense bud to go with the loose, airy bud to kind of try to fit a medium in there to really try to create something that's going to uh, be better uh, overall. So sometimes a, a preservationist can just be making things for, you know, just the, hey, we got this. But a breeder will say, we, we really created this. So, you know, there's a little bit more in-depth going on, a little bit more uh, garden skills, a little bit more time, a little bit more money. A lot of things go into a breed as well. Uh, we're going to talk about the way I breed. Um, the way I breed, I like to select from a lot of plants. I start from 100. Yeah, I pop uh, sometimes more than 100 seeds. And um, when they're all small and they're only, you know, um, just getting into out of their seedling stage, you know, it, it really doesn't take up as much room as you think it would. And I like to use the Bitonic Air trays. I have um, a very nice one that's uh, eight foot long. Um, and I got another one that's just a four by four. I like to use those trays because they have hookups for the uh, drains as well. It's sort of like an ebb and flow type of setup. I can top feed. Everything will just drain out of the bottom into waste. So I like to use that process during this breeding process because it makes it a lot, a lot easier for me than to have 100 DWC uh, setup buckets or, you know, um, 100 pots that are 10-gallon pots. So typically in the very beginning, it's really easy. You can stack them all together on trays and uh, the light's very easy to cover the footprint. You know, um, once you're getting through that process, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're wanting to select. When you hunt and select, you're hunting through hundreds of genetics to find the best ones to work with. When you select, you're selecting the best that you've hunted through and you're really choosing at that point the best of the best to work with. So what I do is I will eliminate as I go Ronti genetics, stuff that's not growing well. And like I had mentioned before, if it's a third, fourth, fifth generation, you don't necessarily have to pop hundreds at a time because the work was already done for you. What's up? This is Gordy with Cutting Edge Solutions here to tell you about our premium fertilizer products. 
We make everything dye-free, hormone-free, PGR-free, and sodium chloride-free. Check out our cannabis-specific fertilizers and additives for your next grow. www.cuttingedgesolutions.com and you can find us on Instagram at Cutting Edge Solutions. You could really do about 25 to 50 if you're working a worked genetic that's already into generations. But if you got something that's F1, it's brand new, you're definitely going to want to pop because the reason why is you're going to have so much predisposition from different things in there. And you're also at the mercy of your breeder. I've talked about this plenty of times before, guys. Sure, plants come out great. A lot of us have discovered a lot of wonderful things, but you're at the mercy of your breeder's terpene profile, his nose, his keen sense of smell, taste, and stuff like that, because he's the guy behind the wheel driving those genetics to the direction that they're going. So typically, if you don't have studies or you don't know the breeder of the guy that you're working, you know, you're working his genetics, you know, sometimes you won't have an idea of what you're actually working with. And you're just kind of playing it as you see it you know sometimes the studying the notes the homework going in depth with it will really help you understand what you're going to potentially see what you're going to end up with i mean sometimes even the breeder behind it wants to know the results that you're getting to as well because they're continuing to work it and as a breeder they're more that's why i said ocd they're more in depth on everything just information you could just really tell a breeder from a preservation as someone who just makes things and someone who really is controlling the shape of things so when it comes down to breeding you know i've got all those uh, you know cultivars sitting on all these trays and my light footprints right on them and i'm starting to see different aspects of them i'm getting rid of the runties and the shorts and the and the and the and the oblong growing that's really that's really like odd and any mutant stuff stay away from some people like the mutant things but i'm just saying when it comes down to breeding something you don't necessarily want to work with the mutants but i have heard and i have seen and witnessed a lot of different mutant traits that could be good but i'm just talking about simple dynamics of breeding right now we're not going to get too intricate and i'm just going to tell you work with the best of the best let's just avoid the mutant talk right now so you're looking for certain traits and you're looking for certain ailments and you know things are starting to grow and you're weeks into your project and you're starting to notice hey i can cut uh down uh, again and i could really kind of get it down to where i only have a certain amount of cultivars here and you're really kind of training a little bit at the same time you're seeing which plants can kind of take a little bit of training um a little bit of the not necessarily underwater or overwater at this point. That type of stuff will come later um, during the offspring. We'll worry about that too as well. Um, very. At the same time, we are training just slightly to see if anything is a little finicky or if anything is going to give us issues down the road. So we're not going hardcore during the selection, but we are at the same time really studying and taking notes. So we're getting our smells down. We're looking at the way that the branches are developing. We're looking at the thickness, you know, the way that the stacking is going, the the leaf ratio, whether it's got a lot of foliage. We're really kind of looking and selecting the best of the best plants to uh, to, to work with. This is what's going to give us our um, outlook on our offspring. This selection process is what really makes a breeder a breeder having the knowledge of what to look for and the experience and the hands-on is key too. not just having years of growing in a tent 
But I'm talking about years of working around professionals and big commercial settings and seeing hundreds uh, and, and thousands and and just over the years, it being 100,000 cultivars over the years, you know, and, and understanding these plants on a bigger level at all times and understanding that uh, it's, this is a, a wide open gold opportunity for anybody in the cannabis industry right now. Uh, they know that this study, everything that we're doing now, we're in like a golden age and whatever uh, information that we get now is really gonna carry us into the future. So we're all progressing to get this information collectively to really become better. And that's what we do these podcasts for too. You know, we want to push this to the next level. So people are breeding better, they're selecting better and they understand it a little bit better. So once you understand what you're looking for, you're eliminating, you're getting down to a certain count and you're starting to notice that the sexing has come along. The females are showing their females, uh, their hairs, as they say, and uh, the, the males are showing their balls, as they say. So at this point, you're really starting to see that the males are the big boss hogs compared next to the females when they're all growing. You, you start to notice that, you know, the males are a little bit more dominant on growing and looking bigger in the garden at this point uh sometimes you will see females grow just as big as those males that is a very good sign and one of the flags you look for for selection um when she can keep right up there with the males she could eat right there with them um she could take water right there with them like the rest typically you got yourself a boss hog female there too so not only uh, do you have to really go more in depth than just size, look, and all that? You really want to make sure that it has all the traits because a lot of those cultivars, some people would just choose a big one and a big one, and they don't necessarily look at the flowering traits. And sure, it's big and it produces a lot, but the bud really doesn't look nice, and uh, the dimensions aren't, uh, you know, um, how do you say? They don't, uh, you know, uh, you know, correlate with each other well. You know, you got real loose, airy bud at the bottom, and then they're kind of tight at the very top. You know, you kind of want a full embodiment. You want a little bit of everything. So we're not just going to call it the big ones. You know, we're going to we're just selecting the big ones here, and that's it. No, you really have to go in depth with it. You actually have to go into flowering with the females when you go to selecting them too, as well. And sometimes you'll end up pollinating more than one female. I do not release more than one female during my releases or uh, any of my stock. What I do is I flower out my females and I pollinate my females. And the goal is, is after the flowering is done and everything, and I got all my notes and my study, the best stock and the best flower, I keep that seed stock. The rest of the seed stock that was made from the other picks, I will sometimes keep a handful, but they get donated to certain people. There's a lot of veterans out there. There's a lot of uh, uh, people out there that I donate to, and I will give a, a whole entire plant full of seeds to in order for them to grow. Um, they grow farms of it, and I've done this for many years. It actually helps me during my selection process because I get to see all the females flower out. Um, typically, I keep about six females, anywhere between three to six females when I do this. Um, but we're going to get into that later. We still got some intricate details to go on to with our choosing of the males as well and the process of it. So going back to learning your plant count, you now have it down to about 25. You're now learning that you are selecting, you're looking for certain traits, 
and now you have decided to keep um, six males and six females to continue on in this process. And the next process would be to quarantine the males. You absolutely have to quarantine these males. If you just leave a male out, even before flowering, uh, even if it isn't an auto flower, it could be a photo period too. Um, these males sometimes will open up and spew a little bit of pollen without even being in flower. So you really got to watch out sometimes. You got to make sure that your male isn't going to spew any type of pollen around because A, you want to control your pollen. B, you don't want pollen getting anywhere on anything, uh, on just anything. Um, C, it could also get on your clothes and your hair, meaning that you could spread it to your next garden or uh, possibly someone else's garden. Um, you just really want to quarantine your male to control that pollen. That pollen is a really, really uh, potent pollen. It could actually fly up to two miles and outdoors in Mother Nature and pollinate other people's plants around you. So say if you accidentally had a male, you could actually have an issue to where, you know, you're pollinating other people's if you're not paying attention. So that's something that you really want to pay attention to when it comes down to the males. So you're going to quarantine those males in a tent. Or in an area, say if you got certain rooms, you know, and I, and I still think that the tent's the best way to quarantine them. But uh, you're going to quarantine your males uh, and you're going to see the development of your males. And you're really going to pay attention to what's the biggest and what's the best and what has the best smells, what has the best uh, structure, thickness. There's a lot of different things that go into it. That's just the top of my head, a few things to look for. We can go more in-depth on selection of males and, and females into later episodes, but we're trying to kind of jam-pack as much as we can in a small weekly segment here. So once you have your males quarantined in the tent, you realize that you're starting the process of really getting this going here. At that time, your females are also developing. They're also growing very big. You're looking for certain expressions. And we understand that each person and each grow area, each uh, nutrient brand and each medium is going to express different for these plants. So, like I said, this goes back to the mercy of the breeder and how much he really knows about what he's working with sometimes. So, guys, if I can give you any cool information about breeders and how to select them and preservation, how to select certain people's stuff to grow, do your homework on the breeders, talk to them, see how much they really know about their genetics and see how much they really go in depth about their genetics, see how much they like to talk about it, see how much they remember about it. Because then you'll really kind of uh, get the understanding of what they went through. Because during the selection of, of the males and the females, it's just so uh, delicate. You know, at this stage, your parental lineage, it's just like humans. If we're going to mix two big people together, typically a big kid is going to come out of that, you know, um, whether male or female. And, you know, typically, if, say, if they're uh, very, you know, uh, two people that, you know, um, they have very, very blue eyes and they have very, very blonde hair. Typically those people are going to create blonde eyes, blue, you know, uh, blonde eyes, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, and, and it's the same way when it comes down to breeding. So you really want to work the best with the best. You don't just want to throw anything together. I've seen people throw together terpene profiles that just don't mesh. Um, certain hybrids that just don't mesh or certain, you know, sativas or indicas. They did. Not everything goes together with everything. It's just like people, you know, you just can't be sometimes certain people just don't mix, you know, it just doesn't work out at the end of the day. And it's the same way for cannabis. You really want to be 
putting together two good profiles that are going to mesh well together. You don't want to take um, just anything and mash it. It becomes a, a garbage pail at the end of the day. It's just a whole bunch of stuff you throw in it. It's a blizzard, a, a twister, or whatever. You know, it's just totally a mix of anything. You never know what you're going to get during the F1s and the F2 stage, you know. And that's the difference, like I said, between, you know, preservationists as a breeder is is how much in-depth in detail and, and, and what they're really doing and, and how they're shaping things. Is the person just running the engine or are they behind the wheel, you know, driving it, you know, and that's the way it goes. Breeders are actually putting in a little bit more work than just anybody making seeds. And when it comes down to that selection part, you got your males, you got your females, you're starting to work your way into flowering here. Uh, like I said, we're not going to keep every single female. I do like to keep uh, anywhere between, you know, I, I do like three females to work with. Um, I'm only going to release one female, but I will work three females because I have to see the flowering of these females before I will breed with them. So when I talk about that, it's not just photo period. With photo period, I'm easily able to take a clone. I could throw that into flowering and I could have that uh, show me the flowering the expressions and the traits and everything that's going to happen with her. And with photo period, it's a little bit easier. But with the auto flower, it's different. And that's why I choose multiple females. And that's why I have sometimes more than one male. And that is because I'm trying to see the expression of how they really perform once they get into that flowering stage. Because with auto flowers, you got one shot, you know, and that's why we have to get seeds every single time with auto flowers. And you can't take a clone and you can't just, you can take a clone of an auto flower, but you can't take a clone of an auto flower and then, you know, grow it up until it's big again and then take another clone and make it survive over and over again. I've only heard a story about it once. I've never seen it in real life ever happen. Um, I've never been able to successfully clone an auto flower and get anywhere with it. So what I'm trying to get at to you here is, is auto flowers are really hard to breed with sometimes because you have to do multiple in order to see how they flower out. This will ensure that you're getting the best flowering traits as well, because you're really trying to see whether or not some training can get put in on them, um, some extra uh, ordinary things like uh, a little extra water, a little bit extra food, or lack thereof on both sides, or the fact that I want to bend it completely in half with a chiropractic technique and a high-stress training. I could pinch and bend certain branches to manipulate it into a canopy. Is that going to make that auto flower snap into auto flower, or is it going to allow it to become stronger, veg a little bit longer, and then give me the auto flower? So that's the reason why we work with females and males going into breeding is because at the end of the day, we're trying to find the best traits. And we're not just trying to cut it down to what I thought was the best traits. I work with two because at the end of the day, I'm able to see the study from the smell from the beginning because females change their chirping profile smells. You sometimes start to get a smell in the beginning and then it changes in the middle and then at the end it changes and then during cure it changes. And, you know, you have to really study these aspects of what you can do to each one before they fully develop. And once I get to that point of having uh, my male and my female selected, I always keep those males quarantined in their tent. And what this does is it allows the pollen not to be spread around. All right, we are going to take our female and we are going to place it in the male quarters. 
And what it does is it actually kind of arouses the females a little bit. I've noticed this because I've done it both ways. Have you heard yeah. about this shit? This shit it makes your yield dope off 30%. 30%? And the terpenes are legit. Yeah. Uh, what the shit? The, this shit. This shit. This shit. This shit. Everything you thought you knew. This shit. Put it out the window because you don't need this shit in your grow. In your grow. Oh no. Don't have a no-no in your grow. Use Fish Shed Soil Conditioner. Visit them at www.fishheadfarms.com. Fish Shed. Fish Shed. Fish Shed. Fish Shed. Everything you thought you knew. Fish Shed. Put it out the window because you don't need fish shit in your grow. In your grow. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't have a tent at one point and I had a room. So I was able to take the male in the room and place it in the midst of the females. I would watch this in both settings. And this is something I've noticed. The males get around the females. Um, they have certain smells. Uh, that's what terpenes are. They're actually to uh, attract pollen at the end of the day, attract certain uh, colors for, for insects and that's what they're doing. So all of a sudden, the females start to express better. They're starting to think more. They're starting to show that they are, you know, a little bit more, um, how do I say, they're standing up and perking up a little bit more. Uh, every time I bring a male around females, they just stand up like it's a, like, you know, like, a, uh, like it's a dating show or something. <laughs> it's quite funny. They will perk up and they will get ready to do what they are meant to do because naturally I believe that cannabis wants to procreate. That's why you always see um, sometimes some late flowering, uh, like, you know, at week eight, nine and 10, sometimes I will push certain sativa cultivars, you know, into the weeks that they deserve because in order to grow a sativa, you really have to sometimes go past to 10 to 12 to sometimes even more. And um, I've seen on certain genetics, you know, they don't like to be pushed like that and they'll start to push a nanner, you know, and that's also what we talked about, about predisposition and stress, but it's just one to procreate, you know, those plants will do those things to try to procreate no matter what. So you get your male around your females, they're all perking up. You're starting to see the smells are more predominant because she's trying to attract the male or any insects to get some of that pollen over. And once you put the female in the male's quarters or the male in the female's quarters, um, you are going to see a reaction with the plants. And within days, you're going to start to see pollen uh, start to spew out of the male onto the female. I like to put the female and the male pretty close together. Typically, when I grow, I don't grow with my plants sitting on top of each other or branches, you know, munched into other branches and stuff like that. It just doesn't work really well for airflow um, for me. So I don't grow that way. And what I like to do when it comes to breeding, though, is I like to breed that way. I like to put the female right next to the male overnight and the male will spew over that female overnight. I will walk into the tent um, wearing a certain array of clothing that I know I have to take off before I exit the room and go into anywhere else. Um, so what I'll do is I'll walk into the tent and I will have um, my foot slippers on, which are, or my shoe slipper on, which will uh, keep me from bringing anything inside the tent. 
Uh, so I step inside the tent and then I will sometimes take my hand straight to the male plant and I will bend it over to the female, uh, slightly bending the plant over. And I will kind of uh, knock the main stem of the male and a lot of palm will just whoosh all over the female. And this will ensure that it really got her pollinated. So when I do this, I should probably backtrack just slightly to tell you when the best time to do this pollination is too. So when it comes down to it, female has certain stages of the flower development. You have, when you flip your lights or it goes into auto flower, you start to see abundance of the hairs. You start to see the pre-flower develop. It starts to become a bud. You know, the buds are developing. The buds are starting to uh, create more um, mass. You know, you're starting to see more surface area. It's becoming bigger. More hairs are developing. Do not pollinate your plant immediately into flower. You want to pollinate your plant two to three to four weeks into flowering. You want a good size developed pre-flower. You want about maybe the size of your thumbnail, depending on how big your thumb is. You want a nice thumbnail size bud growing with a, a lot of hairs showing. These, these hairs are really going to be your best indication. Once you have an abundance amount of hairs, it's, it's a really good sign that, okay, it's ready to pollinate. So we have a female that's in the flower about two to three to four weeks. Um, her pre-flower development is decent size, and we are taking it over to the male tent. We're placing them together overnight, and we're dusting up the female as much as we can. And what I will do is I will take that female out of the tent. I will bring her back over to the area to where all of the females are growing. I will go grab the next female, bring her over to the tent, and she'll spend a night with that male. Same way. They spend a night in the chambers. So that's how I do it. I take a female and she spends the night with the male in the chamber and they pollinate each other, or excuse me, and the male pollinates it and they work with each other and they are going to create offspring. So the next step is I'm going to take that female out and put her back into where her grow area is. I'm actually going to keep the males growing. I'm going to allow them to re, uh, kind of recuperate over about two or three more days, and they are going to create more pollen. And what I do after about two, three, four days, let's say uh, a business week goes by and uh, the next the weekend comes up, I'm going to go grab that female that we've pollinated. I'm going to bring her back to the male quarters and I'm going to pollinate her again. Same way I did the first time, even though we've already pollinated one time, I'm ensuring this second pollination step to really make sure that we covered as much surface area as possible. Because when it comes down to it and it comes down to breeding, the more surface area, the more area for seeds to develop. It's a really good thing. It's where you really want to be when it comes down to uh, breeding. The more surface area equals more seeds, the bigger bud that it develops, the bigger mass of it, the more seeds you'll have. Sometimes it also will um, create a little bit bigger of a seed if you wait. Um, if you wait those uh, three to four you know, weeks into flowering before you pollinate, this will also help you create uh, good solid seeds. If you pollinate early before the three, four weeks, say if you did it like two weeks into flowering and you were ready and you thought it was big, but it really wasn't big enough, 
this will kind of hinder the plant and it only develops so many seeds and the seeds can sometimes be small if you do it too early. So really doing it at the right time will ensure that you're getting the best of the best. You're getting the most amount of seeds. You're getting a good size of seed. You're really kind of doing your best work if you don't do it early and you do it at the right time. Okay. So I really want to preach that pollinating too early is where a lot of people fall short. What it does is it actually makes the plant look weird and wrong. It, it just totally puts all the energy in the wrong areas. Um, they know the right stage to hit it at. It's just like a regular female out there in the world. You don't want your female to be too young and underdeveloped before she's getting pregnant. You know, you really want to have a strong, able body, um, a fully developed, mature uh, body of bud before you go putting pollen into it. So we have that second pollination Um practice to ensure that we're covering service area that we're really making as many seeds as we can in the best way possible so after that second pollination i'm going to take those females back to their area to where they are going to uh, grow for the rest of their time and they are being treated the same way as if they were growing bud the entire time i'm feeding them the same way as if i was uh growing for production you know, I'm not over putting in extra chemicals of like, you know, anything, because when I grow, I grow very uh, borderline, not not basic or bare bones, but I give them just what they want. I don't give them a whole bunch of extra. I'm not the type of guy that'll go out and buy terpenator or terpene oils and all that extra stuff trying to motivate, you know, um, how do I say unnatural tastes and bud, you know, I let everything do its natural path with my, with my routine. And I believe it works really good for the seed production too, as well. I'm not over saturating it with any, uh, nitrogen or bad nitrogens. I'm working a good, um, a good balance of everything, I believe. And that's, I believe the same approach that you need to take when it comes to what do I feed her? Do I feed her a little bit of extra this or that? No, just feed her the regular that you would for um, as if you were growing a regular plant. And this will help you grow healthy, good offspring seeds. This is what you're aiming for. So once you have both of those pollinated, uh, both those females pollinated, and you have totally covered a lot of that plant to the point where you know it's got so many seeds develop on it. And you're starting to see the seeds literally poking out of it um, that are immature, that are light green, that are going to become mature. But you're seeing so, an abundance of seeds growing at that time. But usually the second time you pollinate, you're already seeing the first seeds develop. So after you pollinate and you do the second pollination after a week, even though it takes about six weeks after you pollinate the first time, you are going to take this whole plant the full eight weeks. The reason why you're going to do this is because the first time you pollinated, um, you did it a week before the second pollination. So typically you would want to wait six to seven weeks after. So seeing that you pollinated a second time, we're going to wait eight weeks. So we're going to take this plant a full eight weeks. We're going to let it mature. Um, some seeds will be mature on the plant before others will be mature by about a week, but it's not that big of a deal. It's only about a week. So we're waiting about five to six, seven days before we're harvesting. That's all. Um, so we're going to write down the time that we did that second pollination, because like I said, seven weeks after that second pollination, we're ready to harvest. So we're also going to get rid of the males after that second pollination at that time. We're going to take some study information, um, write down, jot some notes, 
take a couple pictures, and then we're going to uh, sacrifice the males, take them out of the tent. We're going to wipe down that entire tent, A to Z, the fan, everything, new filter. Uh, we're wiping it down 100%. Why? Um, because if we go to a next project, we don't want any pollen of that that specific genetic to be getting around or possibly cross-contaminating into other plants because then you're really looking at trouble because you're not uh, offering what you're, you know, what you're really trying to create. So I've seen it happen before. I've seen someone have a male around and then they got rid of it and then put a new male right in there immediately after. And the way the seeds came out, they had a bunch of different variations so much to where it showed almost the traits of the male before and then when we really kind of looked at it and did the study he came to the conclusion that he believes that it got cross-contaminated so it happens really easy it could actually happen to a lot of people that are working with feminized genetics too as well if you don't quarantine your pollen it can get it can get on anything man like i said it can get on your clothes your hair it can easily be uh cross-contaminated into other people's stuff and if you go to a friend's house who's trying to grow sensimilia and you end up bringing some pollen on your clothes or your hair or something and cause them to have that and you know you know that you have males and he knows that you have males around and you're the only one with males around and he's got seeds on there and there's no stress pods and there's no hermes around you know he's he's gonna know it came from you you know because you work with males so be as best as you can be around those males and be clean water will also make the pollen inactive so if you want to spray your arms down or mist yourself a little bit before you leave the room i recommend uh brushing out your hair if you got long hair i recommend uh switching your shirt and having a, an outfit that you go down in your garden with sometimes a jacket or a long sleeve um just keep it clean it's it's also a big thing too so now you have your females starting to develop their seeds. You're feeding it the same normal routine. You're not doing anything different. And at the end of the day, you're paying attention, or excuse me, and at the end of this breed, you're paying attention to which female really gave you the absolute best results. Sometimes both of them give you some really, really good results and you can't get rid of both of them. And you just, you're stuck with both of them and you just can't pick one. What you're going to do is you're going to market version one and version two. This will allow you to at least separate the projects. This will allow others to distinguish the certain male that you use, the certain female that you use. Uh, some people will do open pollination and we'll use two males and we'll just put them into the two and say, hey, that's the way it goes for both of them. I don't do it that way. I, if I'm going to use two different males and two different females, what I do is I choose one female with one male and one female with another male, and then that's it. And they don't cross into each other. I just have two projects, and I understand, you know, what this dynamics of this one is and what the dynamics of that one is. So whenever it comes down to it and you say you have two females, you're going to write version one, version two. Even though you had two of the males of the same thing, two of the females of the same thing, Right, version one, version two, because the variance is going to be different. You don't want to call it the same thing. I know a lot of people who do that, but I don't necessarily think it's actually right unless they list it as version one or version two. I know a lot of people who will just release it all as the same thing. That doesn't give me enough insight into things and it doesn't allow me to study enough. So that's why I don't do it that way. I really kind of want to know exactly what's going into it 
exactly how it's going to be. Um, I can go back and trace my steps. I can go back and trace where certain lineage or, or things came from, expressions came from, and that will give me better insight than just doing an open pollination like that because I don't believe in open pollination. Don't get me wrong like I'm knocking it or saying it's wrong or anything like that. I just That's just not my practice. So um, I like to practice what I preach. So I work with the style that I work to ensure the results that I get. And doing this really gives me a better aspect. This is Liam with Atlas Seed, proud sponsor of the Autoflower Review. For direct access to the best of the best of our genetic library, check out our breeder selection marketplace at www.atlasseed.com. So handling my business that way at the end of the day really will give me an easier way to collect data and kind of work to the future for that. So once I get that pollination done, we're waiting that solid um, eight weeks. And that reason why is because we did a two week in between pollination, just to ensure that we covered it. And we are going to grow that entire time as if it were regular bud. We're going to harvest it as if it were regular bud. And we're also going to dry and cure it as if it were regular bud too. You're going to be a little bit more gentle with the plant because when you have seeds growing in a plant sometimes you could hit the plant like uh with your arm or something like that and it will make some of the seeds fall out of the plant so you got to really kind of be careful because if you pollinated correctly you're going to have seeds just spewing out of that plant you're going to see seeds galore poking out everywhere you're going to see them growing um the reason why you wait that full um, six, seven, eight weeks after pollination is to ensure that all of these seeds are developed because sometimes people will say they collect the uh, pollen instead of taking the mail in the same room and they say they collected it um, and they are wanting to take it from a vial and they're using a paintbrush and they're just slowly dusting each one in each site and or say that they were given some pollen and they only had a certain amount that pollen will go a long long ways pollen is very potent a small vial of pollen let's say one milliliter a lot of the seed vials that we get the old scientific seed vials not the discs that we see in the new age of seed packs but the old scientific vials where people used to put samples in and stuff, they sell them in 0.5 milliliters, one, one, you know, milliliter, stuff like that. Um, typically it's a 0.5 or a one milliliter. If you fill a 0.5 or a one milliliter, that could do almost five to six plants fully. Like just that small amount of pollen goes a very, very long way. So sometimes pollen could be a little expensive if you're buying pollen too. One of my ideas back then was I wanted to create a website that was the king of pollen. I've noticed that not a lot of people work with males. I had worked with so many males and was breeding and doing projects all the time that I started to study males and really was intrigued by the male cannabis plant. And I started to understand like certain traits to look for and certain things about males. And then I came up with this idea that said, man, I could really collect these males, profile them, take pictures of them and collect their pollen and store their pollen properly because you can store pollen sometimes up to like six months without an issue if you do it proper. And I wanted to start collecting pollen and creating a website to where people could access that pollen. You know, of course, you know, you'd be compensated for it, but I wanted to make a website of the pollen, be the pollen king, basically work with nothing but males and collect pollen all day because 
I know how much it means people to do these projects and I know how much it means for people to learn about these projects. So, you know, just little ideas for the future, but uh, you're going to harvest that plant just normally and you're going to, you're going to dry it. You're going to cure it as normally. So whenever you first cut the plant down and the seeds are falling out, typically you don't want to pack those seeds into a package right away. You kind of want to let those seeds dry out and cure. And after what I mean by that is if they're a little wet sometimes, like, and you put them all in one package and like jar it up or something, a lot of the times if they're fresh like that, they might be able to create a mold or you can end up having an issue with the way that you're, uh, you know, storing the seeds. So a good dry and cure will ensure that the seeds are just really good to go. Um, you're going to want to make sure that the seeds have that membrane on them um, and that they are colored. You don't want greenies or whites. Whites are basically duds. Um, sometimes you could have seeds that look almost like all white, but they're actually good seeds. So I don't necessarily say that if all seeds are, are like a green or a white, they're all duds, but most of the time they are. Um, sometimes some seeds that are created don't even have a membrane of a tiger stripe and they have like a gray look and they don't have any type of like striping membrane on them at all, but that's the way all the seeds come out and they all germinate proper and grow proper. So I don't say that they all have to be tiger stripes. So a lot of the time when people describe what the best seeds are and you really do see the membrane on the better. You do see a brown one on most of the better ones or a color. You know, sometimes it'll be gray or a little bit darker black, depending on the variety. There's so many seeds. There's actually a really cool picture they have on a poster out there that really shows the seed of all the genetics out there in the world and the variants of how they look. You know, you can start to get an idea of, you know, what they look like. Some of them are actually really light. Some of them are big. Some of them are small, like uh, OGKB, that one's a real weird seed. That one's like super light. So like when you put it through a, a seed separator machine, you have to be like really keen about the, the air pressure and stuff like that, or the vacuum pressure. And it's a little different than the usual. So not all seeds are the same, you know, a little, little different than the other, but you're going to want to cure those seeds, dry them properly. And when you store them, you're going to want to either store them with some people use rice. Um, some people will put them in a bag or a jar or, um, a mason jar, glass jar, and then they will put it in a humididora, um, or a cigar humidifier area, big box somewhere that's controlled as far as the, you could put them in the can of control machines. You just want to really control, um, the area that they're in. You don't want it to be over dry and you don't want it to be super wet. But you definitely don't want it to be overdried too. That's why you see problems with seeds uh, that are old that won't pop and stuff like that is because they've just not, they weren't stored right. And they're just old and they start to, you know, you really want to keep them in a, in a really um, good, um, how do I say this? It's almost the same as storing bud. So if you want to keep a 60-60, which is temperature humidity, 60 degrees, 60% humidity, 65-55, that is about the range for seeds too as well. Same thing for buds. It's kind of funny how they correlate with each other. But at that point, you have your offspring at this point now, and you are ready to pop them, and you're ready to test them. So when you go through testing, there's a big protocol for that type of stuff, guys. You definitely want to do more than just handing them out to a bunch of friends and popping them yourself and just taking a few pictures. You really have to study this. When it comes down to an F1, you really got to realize there's a bunch of variants 
and you're still going to see a lot of different things. But if you did it right during your hunting and selection process, your parental lineage, the mother and the father, are going to express in these offspring a lot. So if you did your hard work and you really did your homework and really pressed the the fact that you wanted to breed and not just preserve and you did all these intricate details and you picked the right stuff and and you're seeing it in your offspring, you did a successful breed. You know, if you got something that is popping and it's coming out with a bunch of Hermes and a bunch of stress pods, and we're not talking about people that just grew them in the shade or half the, you know, not half the growers, but a good majority of the growers on Instagram these days. Um, a lot of them don't know what they're doing and they will sometimes get a hold of a femme or they get a hold of plants and they beat the crap out of the plant and they got it literally growing in the shade. Um, most of the day, the temperatures are cold and the plants just runted, stunted in the sides of the herm. I mean, that's their fault. There's a lot of growers who are actually at fault for a lot of the issues that happen. But if you are growing your plants and you're seeing all that parental lineage and selection that you had in your offspring, you're going to realize that you're the one behind the wheel and the engine's running and you're on your way, you know, and you're becoming a breeder and you're continuing your process and, and you're not just preserving, you know? So these are, that's kind of the difference between a, a preservationist and a, and a breeder, you know, and, and the process is a little different for everyone. Like I said, I explained to you how I do it. Um, I'm going to get more in depth about it. We're going to talk about what it takes to select a male, what it takes to select a female, and we'll really get in depth with that later episodes. But I just kind of wanted to touch base on like how I go about it. We got no fans in the room at all time too, as well, when it comes down to pollination, um, sometimes you'll be sweating a little bit in there, but Hey, no fans. It's not going to give you any problems about pollination getting put around everywhere. Because like I said, you know, getting the right timing, of the pollination done, um, not doing it too early and selecting proper, uh, making sure that you're not doing open pollination, that you're, you know, quarantining each one. We have multiple tents. We have multiple rooms here and uh, we have multiple areas that we could really quarantine. And quarantine is one of the bigger, bigger things that really have to be controlled. Um, another thing is, is, uh, more information can be talked about during this process about, you know, the, uh, nutrients and, uh, how to feed it, uh, the levels and stuff. That's why I mentioned just grow it normal guys, like a normal plant. Um, when it comes down to breeding, just treat it as if it was growing regular flowers. Uh, just don't overdo it. Don't go pumping anything extra into it. And, uh, when it comes down to the offspring, you really want to do a lot of testing. You want to see at least 50 plants before you go releasing anything. You want to see plants yourself hands-on. You can't just send testers off, off to people and have them test it and then take those pictures and then drop it. You can't do that. What you have to do is you have to send testers out to other people, let them take pictures. That's fine. You can keep those pictures. You could use those pictures. But ultimately, the testing needs to be done in your own setting and you're going to have to do those pictures yourself and when it comes down to it um you could post other people's stuff but when it comes down to release you want to release with some, your own pictures you could use other pictures as well from others but your own pictures if you have to use other people's pictures make sure they're really close to you and they're good people because sometimes people aren't necessarily happy about that they kind of want a little bit of extra um, I'm not someone who's super greedy, but I've experienced it before. I've grown uh, a certain genetic called Sapporo uh, from a DVG uh, breeder. And that guy basically used my photos um, to 
post all over the internet about what it would look like if you bought it. He never asked me for permission or anything like that in order to give me a free pack or anything to grow later or an attaboy or a thank you. It just happened. So sometimes I, I do understand where they're coming from. And that's why I tell you at the end of the day, you want your own stuff on there or other people's with yours. You want to do your own testing. You want to be the one behind the wheel the entire time. Because if you give anybody that ability to be your tester too as well, you got to remember they got to share the same interests, traits, and and practices you because their growing process is different from her process and his process and my process. Everyone's garden is different. And at the end of the day, all people's buds all express in their environment and their ways of growing is very rarely do you see the same exact thing every single time everywhere you go. It's always a little bit different. And that's our signature as humans. We put our little signature on things. It's the way we grow. So today, I hope I touch base on um, just some some easy, quick talk about, you know, preservation and breeding and what it takes. And, you know, um, I'd like to get more intricate about things. I think we could talk about this a little bit more. Uh, I think if someone was here to ask me a lot of questions, too, I can cover a lot more as well. So hopefully we'll have someone uh, in here with me next week and we can talk about some extras and get some extra details in there. But for now, I hope I covered a decent amount for this week. Uh, this is another Thursday with Thor. I appreciate you guys showing up and I hope you guys smoked good, learned a little something. Got to uh, talk about some cannabis with some others or you're able to learn this topic and go talk about it with others. So hope you guys have a wonderful day. It's good to see you again. And it's good to hear from you guys again. Leave some comments. Leave the uh, comments. If you got any questions, leave comments uh, or questions on the comments. And also check out the giveaway. We have a weekly giveaway every week, guys. We're giving away items, uh, gear, genetics. You never know what you're going to get in the mail. So just make sure that you guys are tuning in for that giveaway every week. Thursdays with Thor. We're giving away something every single week, all year long, every episode. Hopefully we got someone in here with this next episode, man. I'd like to host somebody or have someone uh, bring in some extra details. It'd be pretty cool. So we'll see what next week holds for us, guys. Till then. Later. Later.